Two years before his death, William Tyndale wrote in a preface to a revised edition of his New Testament, the New Testament which he had translated, clarification of his beliefs. Somehow they'd come into question. One of the printers, as I understand, was doing some strange things with the printing and Tyndale had to clarify what his beliefs were. But he wrote about the resurrection. He said, concerning the resurrection, I protest, and he's not using that in the sense of object, it's, I affirm, solemn affirmation. I protest before God and our Savior Jesus Christ and before the universal congregation that believeth in him, that I believe according to the open and manifest scriptures and Catholic faith, and that's a small c Catholic. If you read Tyndale, you know he was not a Roman Catholic. That Christ is risen again in the flesh, which he received of his mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and body wherein he died. And that we all shall, both good and bad, rise, both flesh and body, and appear together before the judgment seat of Christ to receive every man according to his deeds, and that the bodies of all that believe and continue in the true faith of Christ shall be endued with like immortality and glory as is the body of Christ. That is his testimony to what he believed regarding the resurrection, and we might distinguish between the judgments as we look at Scripture, judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne of judgment, but what he is solemnly affirming is the truth of the resurrection of Christ and the implications for believers and certainly unbelievers as well. The doctrine of the resurrection of Christ is inextricably linked to our hope as believers Paul states it in 1 Corinthians 15, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That comes from the great resurrection chapter as he had to confront the Corinthians who said that there was no resurrection and he had to draw out the implications of their thinking because if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And that's essential to our faith. One writer said, H.P. Lydon, faith in the resurrection is the very keystone of the arch of Christian faith and when it is removed, all must inevitably crumble into ruin. In terms of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel as it went forward following his resurrection, it was essential that his apostles, that his disciples become witnesses. The gospels contain a record of their eyewitness testimony, but when we look at the gospels, we see a very open and honest record of what their thinking was and their unbelief prior to Christ's appearance to them. Luke records 
that the women who went to the tomb and found it empty and met the angels heard the angel ask, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And our chapter today, John chapter 20, has a reference to the eleven. First the ten and then the eleven, because Thomas came later. I would suggest, as you compare the Gospels, there's more to the crowd that is here in this passage than John details. I think that becomes apparent as you compare passages. But what happened when those women were telling those things to the apostles? Luke says, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. That's the apostles. They would not believe. Prior to his appearance to them. Now, if you even read this chapter, read about Peter and John, as they hear the testimony, they go to investigate as you compare passage with passage and try to figure out and search out what took place on this day, it does seem, based upon the testimony of Luke 24, that the Lord had appeared to Simon, Simon Peter, prior to this. But I want you to notice in this passage what is taking place as we began reading in verse 19. What does it say? It says, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, this is resurrection day, and the disciples were meeting with doors shut for fear of the Jews. There's unbelief, there's fear, the door is shut. And yet the Lord comes to his own. The risen Lord comes to his own. And he condescends to them even in their unbelief, even in their fear. And his words to them are marvelous. If you look at this passage, the theme that comes through clearly is peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And so as we see the Lord come to his own, we see him proclaiming peace. We see him giving them a commission. And we also see him receiving a marvelous confession from Thomas at the end of this portion of Scripture. So let's look at this passage together. Let's consider what our Lord is doing here as he comes to his own The fear, if you were among them, would seem to be founded upon the fact that Christ had been taken, arrested, crucified. They, as his disciples, were certainly under consideration by the religious authorities. 
it would not be a stretch at all to believe if you were in that circumstance that your life was in danger. It had only been three days. They were afraid even of being seen, it appears. And their fear just hangs over this group of disciples. One writer said, what a dismal and horrible thing is fear. It hangs like a leaden weight on our energies. And like a concealed but destructive worm, it gnaws away all we cherish as happiness, joy, and peace. Covers our sky with blackness and renders the air which surround us so dense that breathing becomes difficult. And if you had been witness to the arrest, trial, scourging, crucifixion of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the events that followed, certainly gloom and fear. Fear for their own lives. But how does Jesus respond in this circumstance to their condition? First, he sends them a word for them to believe, the testimony of the women. And upon their response of unbelief, he does not reject them at that point, he suddenly appears in the midst of them. Notice that in verse 19. It says, Jesus came and stood in their midst. He suddenly appeared. There's question because the doors are shut that Jesus walked through the wall. He doesn't have to walk through a wall to suddenly appear. Prior to this, it seems he was with those two on the road to Emmaus. But here he comes and stands in their midst, and there he is. And what would that do for your emotions and your state of mind if you're thinking about what's taking place and what has taken place, and even the mystery of this day when report of his resurrection has been given to you, and even those close to you have said, I've I've seen him, but then suddenly there he is. And they couldn't believe it at first, even though they saw him face to face. This may not produce immediate comfort if they have not in their own hearts believed even what their eyes are seeing. And so it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, that his first words to them are peace be with you or peace to you, shalom to you. And if you consider the context and where they were just a few days before in their last interaction with Jesus, they had fled from him in the garden and left him all alone as he was being arrested. Now Jesus had said, let them go. But the reality is they all had fled. In this critical moment, They had left their master, this one who had taught them for three years, who had walked with them, who had eaten with them, who had blessed them and shepherded them, and what are his first words to them? What would you expect them to be? Would you expect peace be with you? He does not issue a rebuke. He does not charge them with blame. Even though they left him without aid in a circumstance that brought about his death, here is the goodness of the Lord. Shalom to you. Irene, I love that Greek word. Always remind me that word peace made me think of the calm and peaceful rain. 
Shalom to you. J.C. Ryle said it was right and fitting that it should be so and in full harmony with things that had gone before. Peace on earth was the song of the heavenly hosts when Christ was born. Peace and rest of soul was the general subject that Christ continually preached for three years. Peace and not riches had been the great legacy with, with which he had left the eleven the night before his crucifixion. Surely it was in full keeping with all the tenor of our Lord's dealings that when he revisited his little company of disciples after his resurrection, his first word should be peace. It was a word that would soothe and calm their minds. Peace, we may safely conclude, was intended by our Lord to be the keynote to the Christian ministry. That same peace which was so continually on the lips of the Master was to be the grand subject of the teaching of His disciples. Peace between God and man through the precious blood of the atonement. Peace between man and man through the infusion of grace and charity to spread such peace as this was to be the work of the church. And of course, this is the Prince of Peace. In his last discourse to them prior to the cross, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Peace to you. And it's a heavenly peace, not a worldly peace. A worldly peace may come from temporal circumstances, from pleasure, rest, enjoyment, honor. But that can't do anything for the inner man. That can't do anything for the troubled soul, truly. No, The peace that Christ gives, someone defined as the absence of spiritual unrest and that assurance of salvation and of God's loving presence under all circumstances which results from exercising faith in God and in His Son and from contemplating His promises. So this is a heavenly peace and it's a peace that He grants and it's a peace that should keep someone's heart from being troubled, even in difficult circumstances. And so here, in these brief words, he reminds them of what he had promised to them and what he was going to leave them with. Someone described it as the inner assurance, which is the reflection of the smile of God in the heart of his child. And you think about it, based on the circumstances, to know that Jesus is not angry, Jesus is not vindictive, Jesus has not come to rebuke, he's come to preach peace. And as one of his disciples, just to have him there would be a wonderful thing, but knowing what that emotional state is and what his posture towards you is would be of concern in light of what's taken place, but his first words are peace. Peace to you. Unless they question as to who he truly is, notice verse 20, it says, And when he had said this, 
he showed them both his hands and his side. And so he's providing evidence. This is not a spirit, as some of them supposed. No, this is Christ in the flesh. And it would have been one thing to see the empty tomb and the stone rolled away, as John and the women had and Peter had. It's another thing to see the folded grave clothes. It's another thing to hear the testimony. But it's another thing to see his face and then to see the marks of the nails in his hand. Notice what it says. He showed them both his hands and his side, presumably He didn't need to show them his feet if they were sandaled. And they could tell this was indeed the Lord. Christ is risen. And he's preaching peace. This is a defining moment. This moment for these who are looking on is a part of of their qualification to be apostles. That's not to say that everyone who saw the Lord, the risen Lord, was an apostle, but to be an apostle, you had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ. And so this is a defining moment for them as they behold him and he's giving them testimony. He even ate something in front of them so that they would be sure. But it's producing joy as well. Look at the rest of the verse, verse 20. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So they're wondering, still in their disbelief, if this is real, is this happening? And he preaches peace to them and shows them his hands and his side. And now they know it is him and the joy that just starts to overwhelm them. Peter talks about joy unspeakable and full of glory for those who having not seen him but love him? It seems that Peter knew something about joy when he talks about that kind of joy, what joy it would have been. The joy of knowing that he's alive, the joy of knowing that he's present here with us, the joy of knowing that everything that he said, everything that he prophesied had come true. He was truthful in everything that he said he was going to do and did happen. And then joy, not only in the memory of what he had done and the significance of that, they would come to realize that more and more, but also the joy of continued fellowship. To know that this was going to continue, what seemed to be lost is now regained, and he's alive. John the Baptist used this word, the same word that's Translated here, rejoice back in John chapter 3 as he's talking about the friend of the bridegroom who hears the bridegroom's voice. The bridegroom is rejoicing because he has the bride. He's rejoicing in the bride. And the friend of the bridegroom is rejoicing because the bridegroom is glad. It's also used to describe the joy of the harvest. And what's happening here is this fearful meeting behind closed doors is now truly what we would say is Resurrection Sunday. We can rejoice now and we know we have the Gospels, we have the message, but 
It was not a joyful day until Jesus came, but now that he's come, what joy they had. I love what one writer said, yes, not until now had their Easter feast been rung in with full peal. They feel as they had risen again from the dead themselves. An inexpressibly blissful peace penetrates their hearts. And I would just ask you today as we come spend some time together around the Word of God and thinking about the resurrection, does the resurrection of Christ produce joy in your heart? Is that what's producing joy today and gladness? There are some today who are glad. I heard the trailer kind of rumble by somebody heading out to the lake today. Probably 5.30 this morning. There's something better than that today. There's a new football league. But there's something better than that today. There is something eternal that's being rejoiced in today. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you've trusted in Christ, it means your sins are forgiven because his sacrifice was accepted on your behalf. It means his claim to be the Son of God is true. It gives meaning to what we are doing even now. If Christ hasn't been raised, we might as well go join the football, go to the lake. First day of the week, would be, it wouldn't mean anything. But the fact that he has raised means from the dead means that there is joy and rejoicing not only on this day, but every single first day of the week for the church of Jesus Christ who rejoices in the resurrection, who rejoices in the fact that their sins are forgiven. We are glad when someone says to us, let's go to the house of the Lord because we know that he means everything to us. And yes, it means that he is interceding for us. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And that sight that day would, of course, be continued as they saw him at other times. When they, each of them, died, all but John, I believe, a martyr's death, they saw him when they went into glory. But are you looking forward yourself to seeing the Lord? He is alive, He's not in the tomb. He has risen from the dead bodily. He has presented his hands and his side. This is what resurrection is. There is no such thing as a spiritual resurrection. That doesn't even make sense. It's a bodily resurrection, and we have the privilege of knowing that God has promised that we will, when he comes, we will see him, or if we leave this life, to be absent from our body is to be present with the Lord. But then there's coming a day when we will be united with a glorious body like his. And forever we will be with the Lord if we know him. That's the hope of the resurrection. Look at verse 21 as it continues here. Jesus, of course, proclaims peace and goes through the process of showing his hands and his side and they're rejoicing. But he has a commission for them as well. And so the risen Lord, yes, preaches peace, but he also commissions these disciples, these that he had instructed, he had taught. And as we see the great commission in other 
Gospels, I think this is the place where if we saw it in John's Gospel, it's here. Because Jesus, again, reiterates the peace, which would have comforted them. But then he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you, or I am sending you. And he has more to say, but let's just consider this commission. His commission to them is like his own. Because he says, as the Father has sent me, I also am sending you. Jesus, of course, was sent by the love of the Father. We know from John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. But here we have, and I'm not adding to Scripture, I'm just applying that same principle based on Jesus' teaching here, is that Christ so loved the world that he's giving his 12 apostles to preach the message of salvation, salvation that's only found in him to the world. I say 12, there's only 10 here. 11 is coming. They're going to take one likely of the 70 in Acts chapter 1 who was one of the disciples in the Gospels. There's kind of an inner circle, the 12, and then there's the wider circle, the 70. Of course, Jesus had more disciples than that. But just like the Father had sent him into the world, now Jesus is sending his disciples into the world to proclaim the message of salvation in his name. And he's giving them words, the words that Jesus himself said, which remember, the words that Jesus said came from the Father. So the Father is giving the words, Jesus is preaching the words, now they're taking those words, and from the heart of God to the world, these 12 apostles are going to spread out in Israel and eventually take that message to the world along with the Apostle Paul. This is Christ's commission. And there's a motivation of love. And there's the authority that he's granting them as he names them apostles. And we see that sometimes at the beginning of the letters in the New Testament as someone identifies them as an apostle of Jesus Christ, a sent one of Jesus Christ who is delivering a message. That's a statement of authority. It's authorization coming from Christ upon one of his own. That doesn't make them perfect. That doesn't make them inerrant. Certainly the words that they wrote in Scripture are, but in terms of their life, now they come authorized by Jesus Christ to minister in his name. And Paul expressed it this way, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul understood his own ministry in that way. That he was an ambassador and the apostles in a special way represented Christ as, testament, as uh, witnesses to the resurrection. So he has given them a ministry like his, words that came from the Father, empowered like him, and I say that based on the next verse. Look at verse 22. It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting, as you study the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, it's apparent that his ministry was done in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit came down upon him 
at his baptism. That was the anointing of the anointed one. And as he performed the works that he did, he did so in the power of the Spirit. It's amazing that though he was the Son of God, yet as he came as a man, he was empowered by the Spirit to do what he did. The triune nature of God certainly is in view and the members of the Trinity working together the Father giving Jesus the words, Jesus giving the words, but, and also doing the miracles, but doing so in the power of the Spirit. And when he said that he did his works, he was doing the works that the Father had given him to do. So you have this working of God through Christ, all three persons. But here, Jesus is calling his disciples to receive that same Spirit. Receive, and I believe he is talking here about the Holy Spirit. It says receive the Holy Spirit. There's no article in the Greek language that would translate the word the, but when you see those two words together, it is a reference to the Holy Spirit, that person of the Trinity. Some suggest that what's taking place here is that actually we've got a preface to Pentecost when Jesus pours out the Spirit. One writer describes this as sort of a sprinkling for the apostles prior to the effusion or the pouring out of the Spirit in the day. There are certainly other views as well. I think the best way to understand what's taking place here is that Jesus is actually doing something that Old Testament prophets sometimes did, where he is enacting or acting a prophecy if you ever look at the life of Ezekiel, Ezekiel did a number of things that, was, that were, they were strange to, to see him do. But in some cases, what he's doing is a foreshadowing of something God was going to do. And so as he creates literally a model of Jerusalem, and things happen to his model of Jerusalem, the people start to understand something's going to happen to Jerusalem, our city. Well, the model was not the city, but Ezekiel had made it so that they would get the clear indication that God was about to do something. Well, God is about to do something. Through Christ, he's about to pour out the Spirit, and Jesus is calling them to receive that Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He told them later in the book of Acts to wait at Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And when Jesus finally poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, lots of things happened. Read Acts chapter 2. But this is prior to that. And there's a breathing out, which some have suggested, I think rightly so, that the Spirit is coming, certainly. That it's coming from God. Jesus is the God-man. He is the promise of the Father, so He is coming from the Father, but also the Son, as Jesus Himself is here breathing and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, as if Jesus also is the source, and He is. He's sending the Spirit. So this same Spirit that is upon Jesus is coming, and Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that He is coming, that He is like Him, a paraclete. I will send you a comforter, He had said in his discourse in John, that comforter or that paraclete, the one called alongside, would be like him. But he said, if I do not go, he cannot come. But if I go away, I will send him to you. 
So this is a call to these disciples to receive him. And notice verse 23, he says, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now this becomes, just at sight, a bit of a challenge, in part because we know what Jesus has already taught. We know what the scriptures teach, that only God can forgive sins. God is the only one who can dismiss sins, who can forgive them, who can truly wash them away. Some and the Roman Catholic Church would take from this passage a doctrine of absolution, which is an act where as the priest listens to the person and perhaps prescribes works of repentance, can also declare to that person that their sins have been forgiven. The problem with that is that Scripture does not testify to that. The book of Acts has nothing to say about that, nor do the pastoral epistles. You can't find that in Scripture. You can confess your sins to God. Jesus taught that in the Lord's Prayer. And when you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from unrighteousness. So this doesn't have to do with a sacrament. This has to do with what the apostles were tasked with. They are tasked with a commission to go forth, sent by Christ, to preach a message of salvation And in that message of salvation was a call to faith and repentance. And upon someone believing in Jesus Christ, they could declare that their sins were forgiven. And that's, I believe, the best way to understand this passage. We're not talking about a sacrament. We're talking about the the declaring of, and I would go beyond the apostles, to the church that someone's sins are forgiven based upon the teaching of Scripture. And I say based upon the teaching of Scripture because God has revealed to us the way that sins are forgiven. They are through believing in His name, and the apostles preached that. For instance, in Acts chapter 13, verse 38, Paul said, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through Him... Everyone who believes is freed, or literally the word there is justified, from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. And if someone were to believe, if someone were to trust, if someone were to turn and ask God for forgiveness and put their trust in Jesus Christ, the apostles, and anyone preaching the church after them could say, your sins are forgiven if you've put your trust in Christ. Now, what they'd be declaring is simply what has happened in heaven because God has given us his word. We understand how that works. God is still the one who's doing the forgiving. It's not the human being. But notice what it says at the end of that verse. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. See, it's possible that someone could reject the message. It's possible that someone could hear the message of Christ and yet not turn, not confess Him as Lord. And though they might protest and say that they know God, the reality is they don't know God. And there were times, of course, in the book of Acts that the preaching of Christ created such a divide that the synagogue was divided and there were some who went this way, others who went this way. 
and the division there was clear that some had had their sins forgiven, believing in Jesus Christ, and others did not. And by the way, that's a sobering thing. To know that in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the offer of forgiveness, if it is received, what a wonderful day. To know that I'm pardoned, justified, declared innocent before God. But if I refuse to turn from my sins, my sins are retained. They're still left with me. And if the gospel has been preached to you, that actually puts you in a place of severe punishment. Severe. Calvin wrote, If ought to be observed that everyone who hears the voice of the gospel, if he do not embrace the forgiveness of sins which is there promised to him, that everyone who hears the voice of the gospel, if he do not embrace the forgiveness of sins which is there promised to him, is liable to eternal damnation. For, as it is a life-giving savor or aroma to the children of God, so to those who perish it is the savor or the aroma of death to death. Not that the preaching of the gospel is necessary for condemning The reprobate, he says, for by nature we are all lost, and in addition to the hereditary curse, everyone who draws down on himself, uh, excuse me, in addition to the hereditary curse, everyone draws down on himself additional causes of death, but because of the obstinacy of those who knowingly and willingly despise the Son of God deserves much severe punishment. So if I could just warn you today to have the good news preached to you. It's a wonderful blessing to even hear of the gospel of Christ. It's a sweet aroma for those who believe. But that same preaching of the victory and the resurrection of Christ could be an aroma of death for some. It will not go well for you. I only say that not because I'm trying to be harsh, but really because there's still a day of opportunity. There's still an opportunity now. The fact that the gospel is being proclaimed to you means there's a day of opportunity when you leave this life. It will be too late, but it's not too late now. And so rather than having heard the gospel and rejected it and meeting Christ at the judgment seat, having rejected the news, and ultimately that means you've rejected him, don't do that. Call upon him today. Bow the knee. Pardon is offered, and he is risen, and he is Lord, and he will welcome you. But it is a sobering thing that there are those who have heard the gospel, perhaps 
dozens or maybe even hundreds of times. I'll never forget the testimony of someone when I was pastoring down in South Carolina. There was a man who would come to the church services and he would sit in the pew and the testimony of one of the members was he never trusted Christ, though he was there every week and even tried to help the church out. But he never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. Yes, it's possible to be in this place, in church, on an Easter Sunday, but not be a Christian. The Christian isn't made because you come to this place. A Christian is born again. Something has transformed in their heart. God has given them eyes to see, ears to hear, a new heart to believe that Jesus is Lord, that He's risen from the dead, that He's died upon the cross. What a wonderful thing it would be that on this day you would bow the knee to Jesus Christ. On this day you would turn and trust in Him and follow Him. And yes, what we heard earlier, embrace the cross. It's not that following Christ is easy. Ask someone who you know is a Christian, is, it, is following Christ easy? No, it's not easy. And compared to what the apostles went through, I think we do have it easy, but it's not easy. The world is not helping us on to God. It's turning our eyes and our mind in a different direction. It's screaming against everything that has to do with faith twisting everything in the Word of God. The risen Lord, as He comes to His own, He preaches peace. And if you came to Him today, put your trust in Him, He would preach peace to you. The Word of God has already done it. There would be peace between you and God. No longer the hostility, no longer the enmity, the hatred on your part towards God, which is really what we're doing when we don't obey His law. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't love me, don't keep my commandments. Jesus didn't say the latter, but that's the opposite. And it really does express hatred for God, antagonism to God, to not follow after the very Son of God who God sent out of His love into this world. Quickly, let's look at this confession of Thomas. Look at verse 24. It says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So he didn't hear the words of peace. He didn't see Jesus' hands. He didn't see Jesus' side. And it seems as though that when he speaks to the disciples, that that is something he has in mind. One person suggested even that there might be a bit of jealousy that Thomas has in his heart because he wasn't there. And they were, and they told him. But now he says these words. Verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, so they're giving him testimony, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's Thomas's refusal to believe based upon the testimony of, it's not just two or three witnesses. There's a lot of witnesses, but Thomas just won't believe. 
He wanted to handle the evidence. He wanted to see it. He wanted empirical data. He wanted to actually see and touch and feel and know because of that, not because of the testimony of others. And what he was doing was rejecting the necessity of faith. He was lifted up in pride and in arrogance. He's refusing to listen to these, his companions for the last three years in following Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So there it is, right in the apostolic company. We know that it was all of them before it was Thomas. So let's not get so hard on Thomas. But Thomas is sinning here. It was all of them who had not believed until Jesus revealed himself. They hadn't believed the testimony of the women. Now Thomas is not believing them. And I, as I've studied the life of Thomas... I do believe there was something to Thomas. Thomas, when Jesus was going to go back into Judea to go to where Lazarus was, he knew, they all knew, that Jesus was going back into a place where people had threatened to kill him. And you know what Thomas said? Let's go so we can die with him. That was Thomas's confidence on that day when they went back to Lazarus. That's John chapter 11. And if I could put it this way, you've heard it said, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Thomas had a deeply held conviction about Christ. And when he saw the crucifixion and realized that Christ had died, he had been so firmly convinced that now he's crushed But isn't it a wonderful thing that in that condition we find him with the disciples again in verse 26? He's there. Don't miss that. Thomas may have doubted. He may have said what he said, but their testimony must have meant something because in verse 26 it says, after eight days his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. So he's not staying away. He's with them. He's there. And what does Jesus do? It's almost a repetition of what we see up in the earlier part of the chapter. Jesus came, verse 26, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, same words, peace be with you. Except now it's Thomas who's among them. Thomas is not excluded from this message of peace. He had been excluded before. He wasn't there. He also had been excluded from the evidence, which when they saw, they wouldn't believe at first, but they did. But now it's Thomas. And based upon what we've seen Jesus show himself and then the disciples telling Thomas about that and then Thomas' own statement about unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. And so Jesus plays upon those very thoughts, and he says to Thomas, verse 27, reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And then he rebukes him for his unbelief. 
Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Could I say to you today, if you're not believing in Jesus Christ, do not be unbelieving. Do not be unbelieving. Believe. That is a command in Scripture, and to disobey that command is sin. Unbelief is a sin. Thomas is called to believe. And as he commands Thomas to believe, and he has said these words, you can imagine Thomas's feelings. F.W. Krumacher in his book, The Risen Redeemer, says, To unbelieving Thomas, our Lord came still as the Prince of Peace. Thomas, whose heart was still attached to him, had remained even whilst astray his beloved disciple. Were he sick, then certainly it was his master's office to be his physician. Though Thomas did not believe, the heavenly spark of love still faintly glimmered within him, and therefore the oil of his faith could not be entirely exhausted. Our Savior addresses him and literally repeats Thomas' own words. What must have been the disciples' experience at this moment? He might fain have hid his face, nay, have crept into the very bosom of the, bosom of the earth. Jesus is offering, touch my, touch my hands, come feel my side, Thomas. How could I? We don't even see him doing that. I mean, if it was me, I think I, wa- I would want to crawl into a place and get away. I wouldn't want to be seen. I'd be so ashamed. But what does Thomas do? He confesses, my Lord and my God. And he doesn't even have to touch him. I think that's the indication from verse 29 when Jesus receives the confession. It says, because you have seen me, have you believed? Thomas had seen, and he gave that confession. And just quickly with me, consider the fact that Thomas is confessing Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, to be absolute master and God in the flesh. Not only does he confess it, but Jesus receives it. Verse 29 says, Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, have you believed? Not only does Christ receive it, he does not rebuke him, he blesses belief in that, and then John, hearing later, writes it, records it. This is not a mistake. This is not Thomas being alarmed and surprised and not a part of the gospel message. No, this is a part of the gospel message. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus doesn't rebuke it. John later writes it and the Spirit seals upon it because we're reading it in Scripture today. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and He is absolute Master. There's no confusion about this. John was writing so that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I would ask you today, have you 
seen who Jesus Christ is and have you believed? You can't see him today. He's not here in the flesh. But Jesus actually says the kind of faith, there's a kind of faith that Thomas has because he's seen, but there's a greater kind of faith. It excels Thomas' faith because it's truly faith. It doesn't have to see in order to believe. We walk by faith, not by sight, Paul says later in one of his epistles. So what he's saying is the essence of faith is believing when you haven't seen He does pronounce a blessing for Thomas. Of course, Thomas is one who has to proclaim this message to the world. It was essential that he believe it, but he promised a blessing upon anyone who did not see, didn't handle the evidence, didn't touch Jesus' side, didn't touch his hands. But in the mouth of two or three witnesses, and we have much more than that, but in the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Do you have faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and have you confessed him as the Son of God? Have you trusted in him as Lord? That makes all the difference in life and eternity. This is not too difficult a thing. God actually puts words in the mouth of someone who would desire to trust in Christ. You can find them in Romans chapter 10. Paul says, what does it say? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That's the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is. No confusion. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, Paul said to the Philippian jailer. And when a person believes, you will never be disappointed. That heart that believes, Paul says, that results in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call Upon him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You could be here today, and today is the day that you need to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Now is the accepted time, the scripture says. Today is the day of salvation. And I would say, as Jesus said to Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. It's a sin to refuse to believe. Whatever it is that you are holding on to, it will not profit you in life. And there is no wisdom, the proverb says, and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Whatever your philosophy, whatever your wisdom, whatever it is that you're holding on to that is against the Lord, that is opposed to the gospel, it will bear absolutely no weight at the judgment seat. No weight. Come to Him. And all you need to do is bring your sin to Him. He knows what to do with your sin. He can cleanse you from that sin. He can wash you. His precious blood was shed that your sins might be forgiven. Would you come to Him today? May God help you. Let's pray.
given a very direct invitation today to salvation. And some confuse that invitation with a walk down a church's aisle. That's not what the invitation is. The invitation is to come to Christ. That takes place in your heart. And it will certainly come out of your mouth that you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. And if you follow Christ, the outward sign of that is to follow Him in believer's baptism. That is, after you've put your trust in Christ, you then testify to that by being baptized. But I just want to make myself available to you. I know that folks in this church who know the Lord would love to share the good news with you. There's a little card in the pew in front of you that has the gospel of God on it. You can read that too. There's some literature downstairs if you wanted to read more about the gospel message, and that's available to you as well. I'd encourage you to take it and don't feel like you need to pay for it. I will stand before God and give account of myself and the preaching that I did, even this day. But you will give account of the hearing of this day. And we need to act when we know what is right. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the truthfulness of the word. Lord, I do ask that you would work in the hearts of those who are here. Every single one of us. That we might believe in the resurrection of Christ. That we might believe in who he truly is. For those who have never yet trusted in Christ, never believed, Lord, we pray that even today would be the day of their salvation. For those of us who know him, we pray that today would be a day of joy. For not living right, certainly a day of repentance. Give us grace to do so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and take our hymnals. Number 162, Thine be the glory. Stand with me.